This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We have an awful lot to get to today. Some of it is going to tail back into masks and wearing of masks. Some of it absolutely isn't. We will get an opportunity to, in about three minutes, meet an incredible individual who's had a really unique experience in finding a passion that wasn't introduced to him by his parents. Now, that's not necessarily the most rare thing, but maybe from a Canadian standpoint, finding the passion for a sport like hockey, we don't usually choose that consciously, do we? Being in Canada, when you're born, if you're family is involved in hockey in any way it doesn't take long before somebody's got a little onesie sleeper and it has somebody's favorite hockey team on it or even look if you play in the nhl bo horvat and his wife just had a son a couple of weeks ago and immediately someone had sent over something knitted that even had little knitted skates in it and baby's first hockey stick or a bib that will have some kind of hockey thing on it. You can actually find those in the Knights Armories, believe it or not. Both of our kids spit up on those quite a bit as they were growing up. And a lot of times, that's how you're introduced to one of your family's passions. It happens so early that you have no recollection of it happening. And you might fade away from it at some point, you might, you know, ah, this isn't for me. I think I'll go and play badminton. I think I'll get involved in golf, whatever it is. But that introduction, especially for a sport like hockey, usually comes because when you're three or four years old, somebody grabs a pair of skates, puts them on your feet, and introduces you to a way of movements that no one should really ever use think about it i'm going to put these knives on your feet and i'm going to put you down on a really slippery surface and uh, after a while you'll just figure it out here push this chair here uh, push this little red plastic thing around see how that works these are normal things for us aren't they that's a normal way of doing things very sharp things on your feet slippery surface those two things should never go together. That's, that's not something that you should be encouraging, especially for small children. Think about it. Hey, you're three years old? Two and a half? Time to learn to skate. Come on. What if I fall down? Could I cut myself? Absolutely. Should I be worried? No. Everybody does it. It's Canada. This is what we lead for a greater part of our lives, isn't it? This is what we do. Pretty incredible. So... We get an opportunity in just about a minute or two to meet somebody whose introduction to hockey was chosen by them. They were the ones that went, hey, what's this thing called hockey? Hey, what is this all about? And this person has embraced it to the point that they have risen up to make incredible community changes. One thing that we hear so often is get your kids involved in team sports. Why do you want to do that? Well, because you learn to be a part of a community. 
You learn how to interact with people. You learn how to be a team player. All of these things that will serve you really well throughout your life. And it doesn't have to be hockey. You can you know, play football. You can play basketball. You can play baseball. There are so many team sports you can be involved in, but as long as you're involved in one of those team sports, you're going, you're going to get that education. You're going to learn those valuable lessons. And so in a case where you are not necessarily introduced to a sport like hockey from a very young age, you're not plopped on the ice at four years old to push a chair around, oftentimes that link never happens. But our first guest on London Live today created that for himself, looked around, saw this this game on ice with the knives on the feet and decided i got to be a part of this and has grown this into something absolutely incredible please welcome rico phillips to london live he is the ontario hockey league's director of cultural diversity and inclusion he's also the 2019 recipient of the willie o'ree community hero award and he has created the Flint Inner City Hockey Program, which continues to be a boon for that community, an absolute plus for that community. Rico, congratulations on the new position, and thanks for being here. Oh, thank you very much. It is, it is a pleasure and, quite honestly, an honor uh, to to be able to speak to your audience and to you personally because... You know, I'm over here in Flint, and I'm on the other other side of the border. Of course, you know that, but I'm also in Firebirds country here, and so I want to make sure uh, the you know the fans over there understand that I'm all for everyone now. <laughs> so. Well, exactly. Well, you know what, Rico, I miss Flint because we've been able to come there for a few years now since the Whalers moved to Flint, and it is one mm-hmm. of my favorite spots to go. It is full of the nicest people that you could meet in the Ontario Hockey League, the most welcoming. It's phenomenal. So I hope I get to see you in person in Flint sometime soon. But just realize that that we're missing Flint from the London Knights world as well. Let's talk a little bit, because we were mentioning before we started speaking about how in Canada, a lot of times you are introduced to the game of hockey at a point where you don't even remember because you're so young. You just, here you are, we'll teach you to skate. You have the very unique experience of having chosen for this game to be a part of your life. Can you take us back to high school and when that happened yep. for you? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, so in uh, Flint, it's quite an uh, urbanized uh, community. And uh, when I was growing up, uh, the you know, the normal games were football and basketball because they were easy to play and all, you know, in the sense that you can just buy a ball and you run around. So we did have a, a outdoor rink in my community, but um, it wasn't something we went and did. You know, it's just kind of our friends didn't do that. It, but it wasn't that I didn't have friends I went to school with it in place. So my point in telling you is that, is that there was exposure to the sport when I was young. I just didn't uh, gravitate to it because it wasn't in our community or in my neighborhood that way. But moving forward, um, I always wanted to be a firefighter. And when I was in high school, I was trying to decide how to prepare for that. And I got an opportunity to be the student athletic trainer um, in high school. And luckily for me, I was assigned to the hockey team. And I got to be honest with you, it was my first solo assignment. And 
I'm trying to think, well, how am I going to, I said, well, you know, cause when you're a trainer, you, your, your role is to take care of everybody that's injured. So all I could think is, man, hockey players get their teeth knocked. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> further from the truth. I, well, I say that my teeth got knocked out, but anyway, <laughs> down the road, <laughs> but anyways, um, so when I got on the, uh, became part of the team, so to speak. I was still felt like an outsider. And then I was watching practices, and then I watched my first game, uh, ice level. And like many fans, I just I couldn't believe how cool this was, how fast it was, how much skill was taken, and how much passion these players had. And it just sucked me right in. And, of course, being a part of the team made me want to be one of them as far as a player. And so – I asked the coach if I got some ice skates, could I learn how to skate with the team? And he kind of chuckled because we had a really good team and I was going to be bending my ankles around it, you know, and, uh, and, uh, he said, yeah, yeah, we'll let you come out. And so that was the start of my ice hockey career. Um, but by the time I was, um, a senior, um, I had an opportunity to meet some referees, uh, actually my junior year in high school. And what, what they, told me said if you really want to learn this game inside out is you should become a referee and you'll get some ice skating time and you'll be better for it and so I don't know why I, I took the challenge but I did and um that's where I really got involved with the sport I mean I was on the varsity team but I was the full probably the fifth line and we only had four lines so um I, I played I went on the ice more as a trainer than I did as a player you know when I did play because I just didn't have the skills yet but my hockey, um, or excuse me, my refereeing uh, career started in 1986. And that was when it all took off for hot for me. And I haven't really looked back since then. We're talking with Rico Phillips, the OHL's new director of cultural diversity and inclusion. We mentioned winning the Willie O'Ree Community Hero Award and creating the Flint Inner City Hockey Program. Rico, Hockey is one of those things where when you look around, it's not easy to play. It's not like you say you grab a ball and the sport happens. And a lot of times economics will factor into this. In creating the Flint Inner City Hockey Program, can you tell us about what that has done for kids and and kind of what that challenge has been like for you? Uh, Yes. Uh, So I got my idea concept to, to start this program as a referee. I was on the ice for so many years, um, and I was the only person of color on the ice uh, in the arena, uh, the rink, uh, you know, on many occasions. And it wasn't, uh, I wasn't feeling lonely in that sense, but I just was looking around and all I seen was the exact same type of person playing. In other words, the socioeconomic level was exactly the same. They're all suburban, you know what I mean? And it, it really started to weigh on me like, man, this sport, it should be for everyone, not just them. And, um, and so that's where I spurred my idea. And it took several years to, to have the means and, and way to do it. So when I first kicked it off, my concern was, how am I going to make this free? Because there was no way I'm going to um, attract brand new hockey players from the uh, urban city of Flint to play the sport if I'm going to tell them it's going to cost them anything, to be honest with you. And um, so I worked very diligently with um Piranis Hockey World, I'll give them a, a quick plug because it is important to note that um, it took the, the local ice hockey supplier 
to really give me what I needed to go for. So we got a donation from them for 50 sets of gear to start things off. This is in 2010. And I worked with um, the minor league, or the, excuse me, the minor hockey team that was there at the time um, to, to try to secure ice, and I had some other funding. And, and we went off and running. And so the whole premise of our program is to offer the sport absolutely free, and it, that includes transportation, which until a few years ago we didn't have, and we found out how important transportation was too because it was an, an additional barrier um, to prohibiting kids from playing. And it's basically a learn-to-play, a learn-to-skate program. So it's between 8 and 10 weeks. And at the end of those 10 weeks, we, of course, we do the best thing that you can imagine is that they have their first official game. It's an inter-squad game, but it is so cool. The atmosphere is unbelievable. When you go, you know, all of us parents that have watched games or been to big games, this is always as big as any game you'd ever watch kids play, and they, they can barely skate around and slap the puck. I mean, people from our community come out and make a big deal out of it, put it in the media. It's a free event, that kind of thing. And it really celebrates um, the accomplishment of these kids who virtually have no concept of the sport and no interest in the sport until we, you know, introduce it to them. So it's been phenomenal. And, and one thing that I think has been really important is to build confidence in these kids who are taking on this incredibly skillful um, sport. And, um, it's really paid off. Incredible. Rico Phillips joining us. Rico, you mentioned as a referee, you look around an arena, an entire arena. You've got all the people in the stands, all the parents. You're looking around at the faces of the players. You're the only person of color. What has that mm-hmm. been like on, on those occasions? Um, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, <laughs> not to mention, I'm the person of authority in the building <laughs> so put that on top I, I had to think of that one time man and i'm the guy in charge here <laughs> um at first it was kind of like i was almost kind of trying to slip below a little radar <laughs> because i didn't want to i didn't want to face um racial slurs and taunts because i was a young man when i first started this and my first season two months into my um career as a referee um, I had a uh, ref, uh, excuse me, a coach call me over as assistant coach, but he called me over to complain about a call I missed apparently, and and he he called me the N word, and it was a moment that um, I I don't know that I was prepared for um, because I I grew up in a pretty diverse community, um, and so this wasn't like you know we don't call each other that so so this guy's saying that he's a he's a grown man on top of it i'm a i'm a high schooler and it made me feel so isolated uh alienated and alone that i wanted to leave the sport i really was contemplating that at that very moment but i had a um fellow official that my my uh, mentor on the ice cuz we always had to have mentors back then um he you know uh gave the guy the penalty kicked him out of the game and then um, I was after the game was over, I was in the locker room, I was taking my stuff off and I wasn't talking. And he said, listen, Rico, first things you need to know is you had the authority to take care of him. So you need to either figure out if you're going to grow up or if you're going to stay a kid today. And I looked at him like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, like, how dare you say that? He said, listen, Rico, you're going to come across people in your life, in this world that don't understand that their words are hurtful in the way that it hurt you today. He purposely thought that he was going to put you in a position to where you had no nothing to say. And 
And he said, you didn't have to say a thing. You just had to have action and things like that. You know, it really encouraged me to stick to it. Don't let this man define my happiness and the things I wanted in life. And uh, so it was the, the day I grew up, I say, so to speak, in hockey anyways. And so throughout the years, I, it wasn't the only time I, I was met with racial slurs or epithets or or just different things, you know. Um, but as I got more mature and I learned how to skate better, I let my skating be – what I would do is I would hustle harder than the players on the ice. <laughs> when I'm shagging and icing, I'm the, I'm, uh, you can't even – like, what the heck is he chasing, you know? like, But – what it did for me is it said, hey, I'm out here giving it everything I got, despite what you think I may or may not be. And, and then I opened up my line of communication with coaches and players. So I wouldn't just give be this authoritative figure. I'm a person. And it's, it's the last 15 or more years of my 35 years of doing this has been nothing but great for me, other than, you know, occasional stuff that happens with refereeing. But, I mean, the racial stuff has really kind of gone to the wayside because um, I guess I'm, I've kind of found a way to get above that. Rico Phillips joining us, the OHL's Director of Cultural Diversity and Inclusion. Rico, as a final question, when you look at this new position, you had a career as a firefighter, firefighter Phillips, so you learned mm-hmm. to sleep at odd hours. Well, the hockey world's full of sleeping at odd hours. What <laughs> right. do you hope to do in this position? Well, one thing I, I've... Um... I consider myself as a great communicator. Um, in my career, I've learned lots of things about diversity inclusion. I served uh, as the vice president of our union, and we, we dealt directly with this topic over many occasions. Uh, and so that kind of gives me the backlog. But I think what's important for me going forward and how I'm going to hopefully be able to enhance the OHL's um, situation is with regards to eradicating racism is open up dialogue and be a person that can bring uh, this topic to the forefront, be openly discussed, and then we can work together to make um, whatever changes are necessary so that um, the OHL leads along and follows right along with the NHL and all the leagues that are trying to do much more to make um, the sport more inclusive for others. And and I, th- I also, one other thing I think is going to be important is that in the long run, once the pandemic is, uh, situation is hopefully behind us, um, my goal also is to introduce some level of programming um, that the, the OHL franchises can utilize in their each community. Um, so there's a lot, lot going on, a lot on my plate in the sense that we have uh, some work to do. But um, we're going to form a committee of former OHL players that are uh, players of color um, to kind of help guide. It's not going to be just RICO. It's going to be a collective effort. And um, David Branch and the OHL are very receptive to this. Um, they, When I, I reached out to Mr. Branch for an opportunity like this and um, through some uh, great communication, the opportunity now is here, and I'm going to take it and run with it and make – um, the OHL, proud, proud place. Love it. Rico, please say hi to everybody in Flint for yes, from everybody here in London. And uh, yeah. I look forward to the day when we get to have another conversation like this face-to-face. Sounds like a plan. I will for sure. I will, Take I'm care of yourself. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. All you right. Too. Keep safe. All right, take care.
Yep. That's Rico Phillips, the OHL's Director of Cultural Diversity and Inclusion. He is the 2019 recipient of the Willie O'Ree Community Hero Award, created the Flint Inner City Hockey Program, an amazing guy. And the more amazing people you can surround yourself with, the better. Masking, we just outlined how we need to have an easy rule. It's this or it's that. You can't have gray areas with this. Look at taxi drivers. Look at bus drivers. What are they supposed to do? Oh, yeah, you you have to wear a mask to get in, and you're not wearing one. Get out. I'm not getting out. Take me where I want to go. That's what they're going to get. And what are they supposed to do? There is no easy answer other than making this a whole lot clearer. One of the first words we heard from the CEO of Yellow Taxi is confusion. There shouldn't be any. We're two days away. Confusion. Why do we have confusion? I'm not sure, but we shouldn't. We are joined right now by someone who talked masking again this week and who has a medical degree that can help to show how she feels about masking. Please welcome to London Live the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, Dr. Doris Grinspun. Dr. Grinspun, how are you? Excellent. Thank you. And I am so pleased that you are encouraging and urging people to do what is right. In fact, I said that even to the medical officer of health, Dr. Chris Mackey, we need to mandate masking also in London, Ontario. Okay, you, you said that to him. What did he say Absolutely. back to you, Dr. Grinspun? I about that because it is not either or, you know. It is not either physical distance or masking. It is both. We need physical distance where possible, we need masking where it's crowded places. We need masking in inside places that are not your home. And we need masking in public transit, including in cabs. We need that because we don't have a vaccine. We don't even have effective medications or treatment at this time. So the best protection is wash your hands, keep physical distance, and mask yourself to respect this virus so it doesn't attack you or others. Because all we're trying to do is prevent the spread, right? And if, if it even, I said, if it prevents the spread from one person to another one person somewhere on the planet, that's it. That's all I would need. Just one yeah. person. If it, if it saves one person from getting the virus, isn't that enough? Absolutely. And the issue also is to remember that even when things will get better for a little bit during the summer because we are outside places, comes the fall, comes the winter, we will probably have again a tough time. So let's get used to this issue of doing all we need so that we don't end up in the mess like the U.S. Yeah, I don't want to be in that mess at all. I mean, they they had a new number yesterday, over 75,000 new cases. No one's ever hit that before as a country in a day, and that's only climbing, and we've already seen their projections that say they could be over 100,000 new cases in a day. We don't want any part of that. So if this is going to make any difference... We don't want to be any part of that, and we don't want to be a part of doing well, and then all of a sudden, because we are not careful, again, doing not so good. So let's get used to this new norm until there is a good vaccine, until there are effective treatments which we don't have and likely will not have for the next 18 months. Let's get used to the physical distancing 
And if physical distancing is impossible, then masking and also the washing the hands, not touching your face. It's not so complicated. It's not so difficult. My three-year-old granddaughter does it, and she does it with a lot of fun because of the Mascatoon that we launched. Let's do it, everybody. We are talking with Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Ontario Registered Nurses Association, and you mentioned the Maskathon. We have seen the hashtag on social media, Maskathon, well, encouraging people. Well, and you have people from London, Ontario. My president, Morgan Offert, and her son is part of the Maskathon in those pictures. So you know what? You have people right there at home that are role modeling. Let's all role model for one another. Hey, all we need you to do is throw up a picture on social media of you in a mask, hashtag maskathon, and it does show that, hey, this this is just something that we're doing, and we are going to get pushback, but people have pointed to seatbelts, and if you go back to the early 80s and you watch what people were saying about having mandatory seatbelts, there were people who were ticked off, and you would think, how, how can you be angry about this when the car stops, if you're not wearing a seatbelt, you're going through the windshield, and yet they seem to have these arguments that, oh, no, 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 that, that doesn't make it safer. You can't show this to me. And while we keep hearing, Dr. Grinspun, that, well, the, the science doesn't show, the science this, if you look at science, can you find at least something that suggests masks are making at least a tiny bit of difference? Yes, there is already science about that, and this is why it is spreading around the world. Uh, you know, there is sufficient sufficient evidence that is helping, there is nothing that says the opposite. You know, I want to go back to the issue of the seatbelts that you mentioned and give a, a, a personal anecdote. I remember my mother saying to me, oh, but the police guy is not watching at me. Should I really still put it on? And I would say, yes, this is not for the police guy. This is for you. You know what I mean? <laughs> the issue of the mask and the social distance and the washing the hands is for you to protect the other person. And when the other person is putting the mask, he's protecting you. So collectively, we protect one another. And this is the best, the best fight that we can give to this COVID guy that is nasty. Dr. Doris Grinspun joining us, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Dr. Grinspun, before we end our conversation today, we are seeing things changed so that we have more access to family and friends and loved ones who happen to be in long-term care homes. How do we make sure that we don't have a repeat of some of the tragedies that we had months ago with regard to long-term care homes? So, so opening the doors to visits making family members essential partners in care is part of the solution. It's not part of the problem. We need to absolutely designate family caregivers to be able to go into the homes. In fact, with the premier open um, yesterday, speaking about this and two days ago, is exactly what we need. We, in our view of RNO, need to take it even farther including to homes that have an outbreak, and I will tell you why. We have lost too many precious family members, loved ones, friends in, in nursing homes, too many residents. And yes, we lost them to COVID, but it was not COVID alone. It was COVID plus the fact that not enough hands were there to help them to drink water, to be hydrated, to have the nutrition, 
to have the emotional support, to have the strength and the will to live. So we need to reunite, and RNO put a statement on that. I would urge people to, to Google RNO.ca, both for the Mascathon, also for the action alert that we have telling the Premier we need to put more staffing in nursing home because we don't have enough, and that's why seniors are not safe enough if they don't have enough staffing, and also about the document on reuniting families. We need families back in the homes where they will be with their loved ones. It only will help, Mike. It will not be a, 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 a higher risk because they need to have the PPE. We will give them the education to how to put the PPE, which by now everybody should, be, should know how anyways. We just talked about that, right? So we need to reunite them with their loved ones. Five months, five months that we have we, we or the virus, whoever, you know, we as a collective have stolen time, precious time from residents in nursing homes and their families. We got to stop this because this virus is going to be with us for a while. It's not going away in the next month or two. It's either a year, 18 months, two years. It's, it's, it's a while that we will have it. We can, so what? Are we not going to let them be together for two more years? Imagine that. Yeah, no, we, we can't have it that way. So like you say, it, it has to happen differently. And Dr. Grinspun, before we let you go, I just want to let you know that I just got a release from the Middlesex London Health Unit. I'm, I'm going to read it to you. I haven't even read it before, uh, before now, but here's what it says. It says the Middlesex London Health Unit is going to hold a news conference this afternoon at 2 o'clock to provide information about instructions to all local businesses and organizations to ensure masking and other public health measures are put in place to reduce the spread of COVID-19 in London and Middlesex County. Looks like you're getting your wish. I am so thrilled. I am so thrilled. And to Dr. Mackey, good for listening. 75 people in London, 75% of Londonians said that they wanted mandatory masking. Nurses added their voice. You listen, way to go. And now let's do it. And the few that cannot do it for medical reasons. Let me clarify something. You will hear a lot of rhetoric in the street. You know you don't get enough oxygen, you cannot breathe well enough. My gosh, if that was the case, all the surgeons and the nurses that work in operating rooms will be gone. So no, you get the same oxygen, you get the same capacity to breathe. If some people cannot wear it for Specific reasons, those are few in between, and we should respect that. But those that are using rhetoric or political, you know, uh, stigma, even Mr. Trump now is using it. So let's get on with the show. Well, we really appreciate the time and your advocacy through all of this, Dr. Grinspun. You've done a phenomenal and tireless job through this entire pandemic. Please find a way to get at least five minutes for yourself this weekend, but uh, keep up the great work. Thank you so very much, and a pleasure always to speak with you. We'll do it again. Keep safe. And that, July 31st, we need to do it, because okay. July 31st, a report is coming from Minister Fullerton on staffing in nursing homes. So we got to talk then. I've marked it down. July 31st. You and I are going to talk. I'll work it out. Thanks so much. Fantastic. Take care. Have a good week. Take care.
Dr. Doris Grinspun. She is incredible. So, masking is still an issue? Is that the way that we're going to put it? If you missed it from the Middlesex London Health Unit, Dr. Chris Mackey, the medical officer of health, did not issue an order for masking. He said masking cannot replace keeping two meters apart, but there is a recommendation that municipalities create bylaws that then deal with masking. And you know what? Global News Radio 980 CFPL reporter Jacqueline LaBelle asked, I thought, a brilliant question. And it dealt with one of the issues that comes with regionalization of everything, that you wind up with a patchwork. And if you're going patchwork from, let's say, eastern Ontario, northern Ontario, southern Ontario, that's one thing. But if you're going patchwork between communities that intertwine, so when we're talking about London, Strathroy, um, you know, Exeter, um, all the way up to, you know, Huron-Perth, when we're, when we're talking about those areas, when that becomes an issue, when we're looking at municipalities within that particular area, if you wind up with a patchwork quilt, then it's difficult to understand. And what is one of the biggest criticisms of this pandemic so far? It is the confusion. It's not necessarily miscommunication, because this is hard. It's the confusion that exists. And you know what the other thing is? The generalities that are put out. I cringe every time the province of Ontario, who I feel is doing a decent job of things, that's just my opinion, but I cringe when they put out a stage two or stage three list of recommendations. Because you read through it, and it's almost like someone, if if we could put it in paper form, it's almost like somebody has handed it to somebody in grade two and given them a pair of safety scissors and asked them to make snowflakes where they cut out little bits of it, and then you open it up and you've got yourself a snowflake, it has holes in it everywhere. There are all these holes, and that's difficult. We don't need holes. We need certainty. We need uniformity. And that's something that I know things change day by day, but you don't want a patchwork approach, in my opinion. And now this is left to the City of London to decide on Monday, after speaking with Dr. Chris Mackey, how they're going to play things out. Okay. And then they would issue a bylaw, and then that would have to be put in place, and then that has to be enforced. There is no order. No, we don't have a lot of cases in this area. Middlesex, London has been great. Congratulations. Doesn't mean we won't. Alberta was fantastic. Take a look at Alberta. You know where they're getting cases from? Places like restaurants and indoor spaces. That's where they've had places that's where they've had cases from. So that becomes a concern. We need to get in front of this. And Dr. Mackey even alluded to that. We don't have an order. We have a recommendation. And a lot of this stuff got tied up in, you know, this kind of an order, that kind of an order, another kind of an order. Sometimes things are proposed and they have good intentions, but in the end, they wind up being like those snowflakes that kids create with the safety scissors in grade two. 
And we're going to move on to another one of those things right now. Because at one point, somebody felt that a birth alert would be helpful. A birth alert is something that would be helpful. But when it actually played out, I don't know if helpful is the right word to use. Joining us right now is Dr. Don Lavelle Harvard. Dr. Lavelle Harvard is the director of the First People's House of Learning at Trent University and the president of the Ontario Native Women's Association, and we're really lucky to have her with us. Dr. Lavelle Harvard, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. There may be an awful lot of people who don't know very much about birth alerts, as they came to be called. So maybe we need to start there. What exactly was a birth alert, and why was it put in place? Absolutely. So a birth alert is when the the social worker has identified a woman, for whatever reasons they have, as being at risk of putting her child in danger. So if she is pregnant, they notify the hospital so that the hospital, when the woman comes in to give birth, notifies social services, who then shows up with the police to apprehend this newborn, literally in the delivery room. And we have heard case after case of mothers who never even got to say goodbye, who never even got to hold that infant in their arms for one minute because that delivery room doctor sweeps that baby out of her body at the moment of delivery, hands it to the social worker, and it's apprehended in, in a way that they don't even allow the mother to hold her infant for one minute because of, you know, these conversations about fear in getting a, a tussle if the mother doesn't want to hand that baby over, which nobody would want to. And so this kind of birth alert has created a situation where our newborn infants are being apprehended from the mothers because the mothers were at risk of neglecting or harming the child, not because they had actually done anything. So it was kind of trying to be a preemptive measure, but at the same time, I mean, how can you be preemptive if you don't know if you're preempting something that's going to be there in the first place? Am I following right? Well, this is it. And we have found that, you know, the judgments about who is most at risk, that they are going to be, you know, putting their newborn at risk or or harming their newborn, very often is based on, prejudice, discrimination, because it's massively overrepresented among women of color, among Indigenous mothers. And one of the determining factors that we have seen is that previous involvement with the child welfare system is one of the red flags that is used to identify women to to issue these birth alerts. Now, previous involvement with the child welfare system does not necessarily mean that the mother has abused a child before or neglected or that they have been involved in the child welfare as a parent, sometimes it simply means there's an open file on that woman because she was a victim of the child welfare system as a child, that she was taken, you know, apprehended and or, you know, placed in foster care as as a child. So they have an open file on them, which then, you know, there's a file open with children's aid. They're considered at risk. And what, as you said, what started off as a well-intentioned we know that those who have been involved with child welfare are much greater risk to you know harm their children or neglect later on you can't you know it's because somebody has a risk factor you can't use that to 
apprehend our children before anybody has had a chance to prove themselves. And this is quite simply and honestly just part of a centuries-long process of taking our children away from our Indigenous families, communities, and nations. What started with residential schools, what went through, you know, 60 scoops, we now have millennium scoops, you know, these birth alerts are just the latest part of that process of taking our children away from Indigenous mothers as part of that colonization process. We are talking right now with Dr. Don Lavelle Harvard, director of the First People's House of Learning at Trent University and president of the Ontario Native Women's Association. So, Dr. Lavelle Harvard, now that birth alerts have been taken away by the government, is anything being done for and, you know, it shouldn't be targeted to any specific person, but is anything being put in place or is this just something that has been removed? Uh, well, so we have... I mean, even federally, they're talking about developing those um, processes and supports for the First Nations Child Welfare Associations, uh, because this is the other half of the problem that, you know, we have seen the historic human rights case with Cindy Blackstock, where it was proven that the Canadian government was discriminating against Indigenous child welfare associations by significantly underfunding them in comparison to their provincial non-Indigenous counterparts, and yet still expecting them to offer the same kind of services, the same level of service, and the same level of care for our clients and our families and communities. So when you have, you know, this discriminatory lack of funding against our, our own organizations, you know, there's absolutely, they now that the birth alerts have been removed, we have to have significant investment from the province and from the feds into supportive preventative mechanisms so that moms can get the support they need so that they're not at risk. Um, because one of the, the biggest concerns with this is that if a mom knows a birth alert has been put out, if she's afraid her child is going to be ripped from her arms in the hospital, well, the easy solution is then not to go to hospital. And that, in fact, is putting the very lives of our newborn infants at risk if mom is not getting prenatal care, if mom is not seeing a doctor, if mom is not going to hospital when she goes into labor out of fear that her child will be taken. So, as you said, what was a well-intentioned idea turned into the actual cause of putting these children in extreme danger. So we do absolutely hope. The significant thing we need to remember with this, though, is that the investments need to go into organizations, grassroots, women's associations, friendship centers, organizations that can help provide preventative services, but that are not mandated to apprehend children. Because we know our families, our moms will not go to child welfare authorities to ask for help when they're in trouble, because they know that their solution is to take our children. And so we need to have those prevention and those learning, you know, those traditional parenting classes, those, you know, treatment programs, resources for housing, education, employment, offered through associations that are distinctly separate from child welfare associations. Dr. Lavelle Harvard, thank you for explaining this because it is such an important topic. We really appreciate your insight and the information that you've given. Please stay safe. Okay, take care. You too. That is Dr. Don Lavelle Harvard, Director of the First People's House of Learning at Trent University and President of Ontario Native Women's Association. This week, birth alerts done away with. Now, 
You've got to get the right things in. Is it going to cost money? Well, as Dr. Lavelle Harvard said, it, it will take investment, whether it's money, whether it's time, but you've got to get more things in place so that someone doesn't avoid going and saying, I'm going to need help with this, because if they do that, they fear losing their child just by admitting, hey, I might have a weakness here. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 